You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey on Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller. My guest on the podcast this week is a gentleman named Tom Mays and Tom is a clinician educator and the owner of integrated equine therapies in uh, i believe it's in placerville california and uh, tom does a lot of teaching around resolving um you know acute and chronic issues in horses at their deepest levels and i've had a number of podcast guests who've been up there and been educated by tom and it's not you know it's not just about um the healing of things it's how he goes about it you know i think this guy's half wizard half witch doctor half shaman half um allopathic medicine practitioner but yeah there's a lot to what tom does and there's a lot to tom's story about how he got to doing the the things he's currently doing and so uh, i hope you guys enjoy this conversation with tom as much as i did Tom Mays, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Honored to be here. I'm excited to have you here. You know, I've heard a number of stories about things that you do from several previous podcast guests. Grace Keaton was one of them. Patrick King was one of them. Stevie Delahunt was one of them. But we had a we had a retreat at our new place down here. Oh, you know, a couple of months ago, and there was a gal and the retreat who must live up there by you. And she told me some stories about you coming out working with her horse, and I'm like. I got to have this guy on the podcast because he's <laughs> operating. He's operating on a level that is uh, only just becoming apparent to me, and I want to dig into that. Um, what I want to start out here with Tom is: Can you tell us what you currently do, and then I want to try to unravel this the 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 journey to getting there. But what is it you currently do? Primarily, I've gone from working uh, trying to help people with their horses uh, on a private session basis as the primary you know, clinical practice to teaching uh, in in hands-on clinical situations. So I just got done with a, a big four-day uh, just yesterday. And so that's what I would say I would do on the outside. In, in particular, what I'm really doing is helping people um, learn how to find the true causes of lameness, how to how to go in with their hands and to touch and move tissue that they thought they otherwise was impossible. And the reality of that is I really team with Equus to wake people up from a, from a spiritual, energetic standpoint. That's really what my mission statement is. So in the, I get from that what you're saying is in the helping people solve the problem they think they have with the horse yep. you actually help them solve the problems they have with themselves which is the cause of the problems they have with the horse is that what you're getting at yeah court horses if you're connected with a horse it isn't if it's how much the horse is taking on and mirroring your true core symptomology your true issue your deepest issue and 
a lot of a lot of the issues right in the middle of the horse are the humans, and it's their job is to illuminate that with you and to help you move forward and beyond it. The horse's job is to illuminate that. Yes, over and over and over, and it took. And I come to everything. I run the skeptic hard on the bigger something's woo woo and has bigger implications. The harder I'm going to challenge it to make sure it's truly what it is. That's just how I'm wired. And, uh, and partly how I got that from where I came from in my father's upbringing, but, uh, over and over and over, they're showing me once they see that I can listen to them at that level and their true frequency, their language, they, um, illuminate where the issue is in the, the, that I found in them and they take it, they have me go right to the person and I light it up on the person right there next to the horse, standing next to the horse. And it's always provocative and it's always accurate. Yeah. I've heard some stories about that and I want to get into some of that, but let's, let's unravel the path that led you to what you're doing right now. So your dad was a scientist he was the leading uh, endocrinology researcher scientist coming out of the 60s, 70s, 80s for he he developed the first truly sensitive usable uh, hormone tests like testosterone, estradiol, uh, TSH and so on. So mm-hmm. he came out of that as high as it gets. And he thought he was uh, um, uh, he thought he had different perspectives, which he did that allowed him to do what he did. Um, but in the end, he was very allopathic and not open to anything energetic. So we would, as a young child, uh, we would, I would argue with him all the time because I would just see things in, in clients and have different per, uh, perspectives. And he didn't have uh, the tolerance for that. You had to either be in a triple blind study or you had to know all the biochemistry or something before you could even get in the room to talk to him, that kind of thing. Whereas I saw it from a different perspective. Right. So something I've been um, really interested in for quite a while now, especially here on the podcast, is, uh, you know, indigenous practices, shamanic practices. And it seems, uh, you know, our hunter-gatherer roots, all that sort of stuff. And it seems that as time has gone on and culture has changed us and whatever, we've lost some of the senses that we used to have right. when we were, you know, nomadic hunter-gatherers. You know, we, <laughs> they say we have five senses, now we have a lot more than that. But some people um, in the unraveling of their story, like I want to do with you here, sometimes those senses don't show up till later on. I had a, recently had a lady on the podcast just yeah. last week. She, is a, um, she was a clinical psychologist, a psychiatrist or something or other. And then, you know, like spent 10 years getting a postdoc degree, the whole bit, you know, and then she's in a session with a client one time and suddenly the dead grandmother of the client starts talking to her yep. in, in the session. Yep. And she had no previous experience with any of those abilities or senses before. But you, just what you said then, it makes me think that you've had um, senses beyond what a lot of us have from an early age. Can you, can you, yeah, as as early as I can remember, um, yes, I, you know, I, besides being wanting to be really 
physically active and expressive and just just loving life kind of thing, I could sense in people where exactly what their intention was before they did it. I mean, as a little kid, I'd get in trouble because I would say something to somebody before they did it and it would kind of irritate them, especially back in the 60s. Um, yeah, so I always had that. I would get inklings of intuitive interpretation from my grandmother um, talking to her cat or something like that. But no, I always did. So I remember my dad talking with his colleagues and I was standing around as a young, I think I was seven, and he was talking about thyroid issues. And I said, well, that person's thyroid is their adrenal problem. I could just see when I learned what an adrenal was, I wasn't exactly sure at that time, that the adrenals were pulling the thyroid down. And um, that didn't go very well. But <laughs> if you look at it now, yep, high cortisol will bind, you know, T3, T4 on the spot. And so, yeah, I was always interested in the deeper, passionate, compassionate, why are we here story? What are we doing here? Yeah, even from a young age. So let's talk about this thyroid problem. Sure. How, how did it come? What I want to know is the senses that you have. How do they come to you? Do they come to you as a, as a knowing? Do they come as a voice? Do they come as a, a, like a, a picture? How, how did, how did that's these a, things That's a great to? question. Um, I'm always working with students on that. Um, uh, the, what's relative, like I just got done with, the classes I have aren't very big because I got to get my hands and my energy on them. We're going to do a group of techniques and I'm going to move around seven or eight students in that to our block on different horses. And every student is completely different because their energy is different and how they interpret uh, what's going on is different. So in my case, I don't flat out see uh, beings. Uh, directly in form like I have some colleagues to do. I get movie clips, much like Equus does. They're feel movie clips. And when I look at a dysfunction, it starts talk. It, it doesn't talk to me in words. I'm, I would question communicators when they say the horse said blah, blah, blah word to make sure it's accurate. They usually talk in feeling clips that you interpret as words. Not always, but primarily. So mine is, I would see a dysfunction on a human, like they're talking thyroid, and I'd look at the thyroid, and I'd see this, uh, the, uh, the aura, uh, the, the energetic aspect just doesn't look right, but not like in a textbook picture. And then it would take me, it would tell me to go look at something down there, and I'd go, oh, I think that's the adrenals or whatever it is. So I'm constantly getting that. And if I look at a horse a certain way, and I say, oh, yeah, you have this toxicity problem or whatever, then I want to go verify. I still want tertiary, secondary and tertiary tests to verify. And, um, yeah, I sort of just see things in a field movie clip type of thing and then verify. So you were talking a minute ago about you were about seven years old telling your dad about the thyroid thing. So, you know, kids can be, kids can be mean and, uh, you know, bullying's a thing. Yeah. Did you struggle as a kid with that? Um, I'm imagining either one or two things happened. You didn't talk about it, or you did talk about it and you were ridiculed. How, how was how was the childhood with with those sorts of gifts? Uh, yeah, from a family standpoint, which is typical for most of us, I was ridiculed, especially when I 
thought I could offer some insightful thing to my dads and his colleagues because I was around laboratory hospital setting my whole childhood pretty much. So definitely ridiculed at school. Um, I think I just learned to express it in athletics and in uh, mm. that I didn't really go there until my dad got a grant at the University of Hawaii at the big time of his thing. And then when I moved to Hawaii in the late 60s, um, boy, you found out what it was like to be on the wrong side of the race card. It was a phenomenal uh, experience in the target of prejudice. And uh, interestingly enough, what allowed me uh, acceptance in the, in the Hawaiian culture was my intuitive ability. Mm. They, na- their native aspects went, Hey, wait a minute. This, this Howie's got some stuff I kind of like, eh? Yes. you know, like that. And, um, that part was okay. Howley's not really a Howley. Yeah, yeah. 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 So that part was good, but primarily I would say, uh, my life, uh, has been a journey to just throw away conditioning and come back to self. And I'd mm. say that's true for all of us. Where in Hawaii did you live? At that time, it was on Kailua on the windward side of Oahu. You know, so that was okay. the late 60s. And they had just displaced a ton of people inland Waikiki for more uh, hotels. And they were displaced to the other side. Um, and so that's so, on the east. That's on the east side, isn't it? Uh, northeast, yeah. Uh-huh. Right over the right over the Pali Highway, the mountains from from Waikiki. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, so my my son lives in Oahu, and he keeps he's got a sailboat, but he keeps it uh, over there. He lives in just above Waikiki. He lives up. He basically looks down in the Diamond Head, awesome. but his boats around on that east side over there. Yeah, that's a great place to anchor, you know. But uh, not bad, not bad. Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I was talking before to you about how, you know, interested in indigenous practices and how we had these senses that have been suppressed by our culture. And that's interesting that you ended up in Hawaii and the the native Hawaiians could recognize those they that could. connection, that spirituality in you. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that was huge. Um that's where it's, I think, you know, in many ways, I've always been gravitated to indigenous, true, grounded energies. So like when I was uh, grooming, and, and I love academics, and I love allopathic medicine to a point. But I remember sitting one day in pre-med classes at university, and I just realized for me, I, it would kill me to go into the medical school because they have no soul, they have no spirit. There was no, maybe better now, didn't know any functional med docs or anybody then. I literally got up in the middle of a lecture and walked out, and that was the end of the pre-med journey. Um, and my major went from pre-med to medical anthropology on the spot, and that's that's kind of where I went. Okay, so can you explain exactly what medical anthropology is for the people at home who might not know what that is and for the person who's conducting the podcast who might not know what sure. that is. <laughs> Anthropology is an interesting uh, integrative science as it is, and I'm not talking physical of a, a cultural anthropology. It is essentially it's just the study of uh, how uh, healing practices are conducted and orchestrated throughout, throughout cultures and perhaps throughout time. On a specific level, you might see uh, their uses of certain plants and how the how that went over to pharma and, and it, it gets pretty involved, but what are their belief systems in healing? What are their practices? 
whether it be ingesting plants or pharmaceuticals even, to hands-on healing. And that has uh, been mainstay in what I do now. Absolutely. Well, that makes a lot of sense because that sounds like what you, yeah, what you do. So medical yep. anthropology. Yeah. Um, didn't you have a degree in environmental science? As well? I do. I have one there too. I thought my purpose in life was to help people awaken to how to balance, and do, you know, from regenerative agriculture, all those things, especially then, worse now, that we're doing to uh, corrupt the, the, uh, the, we live in a toxic world. So I thought that's where I was going to go with that. And then uh, one day I ended up kind of being told, you know, you're going to go into the, into the public school system and teach. And so um, it's all part of the same purpose, though, the same thing. So the, the, the telling you to, you're going to go in the public school system and teach, what, what was that? What was that message from the universe? Oh, you, well, that's you a great that question. I mean, you asked that. Um, I had contemplated and knew I just had some sort of a way of – I knew I was a teacher. You're, you're, if you're a teacher, you're a teacher, you're a teacher, and I still get up in the morning if I'm going to go teach, and I love it. And I get uh, – anyway, I was uh, – two little kids. I went down one day. I decided – to do another skydiving. I'd been skydiving for a while and I got on somebody's experimental chute. This is the story, exactly how it came. And I spun into the wind. Well, that chute collapsed and I come flying out of the sky and it caught right before the ground and slung me out. And I bounced off my butt, probably 10 feet off a hard alfalfa field. And in the ascent up, I said, yep, okay, I'll teach. I'll wake up, quit being stuck in whatever I was doing. And then I, like an idiot, stuck the landing. And that all happened within, you know, the ascent and the descent of the bounce. Who knows? But time-wise, it was, I get it. I don't, I guess I need this kick in the, you know what? And that's what it was. Um, and that was it. And I went after it. And uh, the next year and a half later, I have my credential and I'm in the classroom. Not everybody has jumped out of a plane not everybody has jumped out of a plane and had a chute collapse and plummet yeah. towards the earth thinking it isn't going to open f for it to open at the last second. So can you, walk huh? us, <laughs> can you walk us through what that feels like? That, that from the moment that chute collapses, the descent to where you I'm pretty sure it's not going to open again. And then at the very end, the universe goes and blows that thing open and then you hit your ass really hard on the ground. What is that like? Well, you know, you, you turn into the wind to land any of these, you sort of fly a shoot in now. But uh, the initially, initially, I remember just, you know, realizing I had the problem. And then my mindset was uh, work the problem, work the problem. And uh, as that got closer to the ground and my speed was uh, probably fatal at that point, um, I still had faith that I could work the problem that yeah. I was. And, and I never I don't ever remember feeling like, oh, that's it. This is it. And I don't know okay. why, but I didn't. And then uh, I don't know why, but it opened just before, you know, I don't know, 30 feet off the ground, probably so that when it did that, it's. It the chute slowed down and it's and it slung me like a pendulum forward. So when I hit the ground, it wasn't on my feet. And um, yeah, I never really thought that that was it. I kept 
I always kept the mindset I was going to work that problem or, or whatever energies around me were going to come in and, and, and help. And I wasn't my time. That's all. Um, Obviously, you're a pretty experienced skydiver at this point in yeah. time to have the wherewithal to stick with working the problem and yeah. not buy into, oh, shit, sort of thing. Yeah, if I would have held on to, to, to there's two, two steering lines. That essentially, the way you steer a chute is you collapse slightly one side and that allows the other side to come around. Um, I basically milk those lines up slowly and slowly to help them inflate and perhaps that I think there was a deeper energy that inflated it because it inflated way too quick. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I think we got to keep working the problem and not from a rational standpoint only, you know, from an energetic mm. standpoint. Right. So how much uh, did you continue skydiving after that? Yeah. Yep. It was a pretty good rehab. It was a real good rehab. Uh, it was a real good rehab. I couldn't let my kids, they, we'd rough and tumble and wrestle on the ground all the time. And if they even moved around me, I couldn't handle it for about three or four months. It tore all the mesentery of all the organs, I guess, little tiny micro tears everywhere. That ended up being the biggest problem, not the big muscle issue. And uh, yeah, as soon as I started feeling good again, I went right back. And then after a while, I just, you know what it was, Warwick, is I started riding horses through single track trail in the trees. And that was better than going 200 miles an hour straight down in the air. And I just went back into riding much more. I went, uh, that's when I shifted there too. Well, somewhere in your, somewhere in me researching about you, I found out that you held like an unofficial world record for the world's highest cliff dive. What's that all about? Yeah, I, I just love energetic anything like that and, and, and definitely was an adrenaline junkie in those days partly still am but we were at lake pal and um we there was this place yeah this had kind of unlimited navajo sandstone cliff so i started uh, I'd, I'd been jumping off any cliff i could find in any swimming hole i could ever find and started in hawaii at waimea in the uh in the ocean there and that and the hawaiians are into that so i got it from them and then um, that day we kept going and I just decided to go really far up. We measured it with a rope. At the time, I think it was 171 feet was the world's mm. record. And we went well into the 180s. And the experience did not disappoint. I remember it, that I had so much airtime that I had to change my flight path with my fingers, my hand. And when I hit... The water was like jumping off like a two or three story building into like thick mud. I don't know how to explain it. And then it was it was absolute nothingness. And I just marveled at the water in that state of mind. And I guess I thought I was under the water and then come back to the surface. I thought it was maybe 10 seconds, maybe. And um, people in the boat were uh, in emergency mode. I guess it, I don't know how long it was. It was really long. But um yeah, that was something. It's not something you want to do very long, take a toll on the body. But, uh, yeah, that was fun. So I didn't get any official credit for it, but I knew I knew how high it was, you know. That's a lot of free fall. Yeah, it is. But it also had a lot of prep in over the years on 10 feet, 20 feet, 30, 80, 100, that kind of thing. I don't think I'd ever gone over 120 before. So that was probably not the smartest move. 
you know, from that standpoint. I think the highest I've jumped is about 30 feet, and that's enough for me. I was just recently in Kentucky at a thing at the, the Old Tech Arena at the Kentucky Horse Park, and we were up on the, the catwalk above the arena where they have to hang the lights and all that sort of stuff. And it's yeah. 65 feet from there yeah. to the arena floor. And I was looking down there thinking, there's no way I'd jump off that into water. <laughs> Some feet. That's insane. You know, it, it, it's, you have to, not just the technique, you have to get the perception of, I can connect with the water and I see water at each level so that your body knows what the timing and what the feeling is like to enter the water. That's true with all the stuff we're doing. It's a technique that you kind of got to get to know. Yeah, 65 feet at a level where you can create some serious problems if you get the water wrong, you know. Water wrong, yeah. It's like yeah. concrete at that point in time. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, for, me, for me, I think it's the, the fear of fear. You know, yes. it's not necessarily being worried about the impact. It's the... That gut swooping, that gut dropping feeling is not a feeling that I find pleasant. And no. it's and that gut dropping feeling is is fear itself. It's you know, it's and and yeah, you sound like you know what, I'm gonna jump straight into one of your questions. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I don't normally do this to keep me at the end, but one of your one of the questions that uh, you chose was what's your relationship like with fear? And it sounds like you've pretty uh, on pretty good terms with it. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's true, although I don't know anybody who's fully, everybody's got a deep fear that's got a deep place in who they are, what they need to work through. Um, I, I mean, I went through some some stuff earlier on. I would do things like cliff diving directly to face that part of myself, mm. one. And two, the flip side of facing your fear is uh, uh, energetic opening, even if it's for a few seconds. But to me, I, I know the biggest um, fear that I waited the longest to work on was just saying, to hell with this conditioning that we're not this and that, and I'm going to be what I came in to be and do it. And that to me was not a physical exploit fear. It was you know, an inner fear, <clears throat> a being fear. Yeah, well, that's the question you know, about fear. I mean, I was asking you about the cliff jumping and right. that would be a fear of something physical but you also said you know as a kid with the the talents that you had that the senses that you had that you're ridiculed a lot so yeah. you know a lot of times people oh, yeah. that are ridiculed as children have a, a strong fear of rejection yep. as they grow up and that and that can definitely shape how you show up in the world did, did you have you struggled with that? Yes, yes, and yeah. and so the self talk conditioning is you can't think that way. You're not good enough. We all have actually. I consider the number one problem with horses. They feel inner shame that they got that isn't even theirs. It was given to them by people usually. Ninety nine percent of the time, it is the the common dysfunction in all of equus and humanity um i'll see it all the time where i take the horse will take me to the human's problem from the horse's problem and i'll go in and i'll keep getting in a hit like this happened when you especially uh, women grown women your issue came about when you were three what does that mean uh, three tends to be the biggest one 
they were told, usually by a parent or a grandmother, quit talking about grandpa. Grandpa's passed. Uh, we have an innate thing in our Western culture where wasn't that many generations ago we got burned at the stake if a child was that psychic. Well, a lot of children are psychic. Mm. We have just been shut down on it. So, yeah, I got a lot of that. I see it all the time in people. And it is their core dysfunction physically to this day, physical dysfunction, from that emotional, mental shutdown in and of itself. Mm, you sound like you're talking to me there. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get back to the, the Tom May story here. Okay. So you're, you're uh, okay, you've, you have the uh, jumping out of the plane, you're about to smack the ground. Something inflates your chute, and that's like, okay, I've been thinking about this. I've got to be a teacher. So you become a, a science teacher, is that correct? Mainly. I mean, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I knew I had to go into that field, and I wasn't sure I wanted to be in the system. So I jumped in at a really good time when they, the, uh, at least out here in the West, they were interested in thematic teaching and whole brain learning. And I'm like, oh, they're speaking my language I'm in. And so I go to teach science, and there wasn't any positions and there were like 500 people for three jobs in this area. And the, and the only one that was open for me was kindergarten of all places. So I started in kindergarten. I was petrified. I'll do it, but I have no idea how I'm going to do something. I love kids, but I thought that was, you know, the I thought it was the gal doing their thing. But uh, anyway, um, I started in kindergarten. It was the greatest experience I ever had. I had to utilize music a ton. I really like hands-on learning that by the time Thanksgiving roll around, those kids are learning so naturally that I've never seen any adult or uh, high school kids be able to come close to that. Their trajectory for learning and, and innate ability to grab information is at the level they need is phenomenal. So they taught me more than I ever taught them. They really did. It was a great experience. You know, when you said you got to, to deal with kindergarten kids, I was thinking, that's the place to start. It is. Because it is. they haven't been indoctrinated completely into Correct. the way culture looks at things. Um, yeah, I did a ton of fifth grade, and I liked that age because it's a switching point into formal mind. And the mm -hmm. first thing I do for the first three weeks is try to get their passion for learning and their wisdom to come up because the school system is about making competent, skill-oriented worker bees, but not wise, creative thinkers and doers. And they shut, boy, they don't like it when you get kids being creative and wise at all anywhere in this country, you know, pretty much. We don't, we don't want them. They challenge the status quo, you know that? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So... I'm reading here, it says you were recognized as a four-time recipient of the Who's Who Amongst America's Teachers Award. What's that all about? That sounds pretty impressive. Yeah, you know, that was just one that's out there uh, in uh, the United States where enough people come together and say, we really like this guy and we he's, and they come and interview you and see, well, what are you doing that's provocative that we would put you as a Who's Who of America's Teachers? So they did that. I don't know. It ended up being four times around the corner on that in my 20 years. It it was, I think the biggest one is I'll see students now that are in their 40s or 30s. It's sometimes hard to recognize, and I help them be them. 
and open up to what they're supposed to do. And that's what they basically say. That to me is the biggest award, you know, the biggest mm. reference I could get. But that was that one, you know. I've, my son for a little while got to go oh, when he was probably in the fourth grade, maybe to this, um, uh, it was a private school. He was only there for not very long. Had to do, you know, I, he got in there because of a job I had at the time. Uh, but they taught these kids how to meditate and, and they taught them yoga. If you had your druthers, like if, if let's say the, I don't know what they're called, the United States Education Board or whatever came to Tom Mays and said, yep. Tom, if you want to change the world for children, what should we introduce into the school curriculum that's not in there? What would you say? Hmm. Well, I've, I've, that's a great question. It's uh, a broad question. Um, it would be first that the teaching focus will be on helping this, the, the, each child develop their passion and their ability to put information together. Since we're looking at academics, it's still going to be about what are the academics about? And um, when you introduce a new concept, the student should be able to answer, so what? Well, why? What's going on with this? The other one is um, logistics of putting seventh to ninth graders to sixth, uh, you put junior high school kids in one spot, that is an experiment in chaos. And I would change, I would do a lot of cross-age teaching. But basically, I would put almost all the academics in, in terms of the, even just fractions. How does it apply? How can you see it? How can you touch it? And then how can you write it? And the other one that the kindergartners taught me from my deeper senses, things that are bothering you, emotional things, is it yours? A lot of the energy kids pick up, we pick up, isn't even ours. And we have, as society, have completely ineptly taught or distaught that concept. That's a huge part of our suffering. A lot of the stuff we pick up, we think is ours, it isn't even. And as soon as I tell a kindergartner, is that yours? You're crying over there, Johnny? And they go, oh, no, it's not. And they would instantly be okay and they'd walk away and run away well it's kind of like the mom kissing the boo-boo you know what there's a lot of power to some of that what do you want to hold on to it's, it's a huge to me it's a huge core, core concept and you have to teach it in a i would teach it in a public system to um to give kids authority over their own energy if you don't want kids to have authority and be wise then you don't want that but That'd be one of the first things. The academics would shift the minute you get that going, you get passion going, their learning goes crazy, fast, real fast. Yeah, I imagine, I imagine so that, you know, it's, yeah, when you change that, everything else changes on top of that. So the academics would be completely different. It is. That to me is more important than real specific academic curriculum changes, which I would, but... Mm -hmm. A lot more hands-on um, curriculum that means something. So, uh, you know, whatever, I would bring in the natural world a lot. Well, I did a lot, lot more. I had a couple acres behind to play with from from food to whatever to like we had to teach the digestive system in older kids. And the way I would teach that is um, 
I would bring in a roadkill deer in the back and we would open it up. We'd first try to figure out how it died from the outside and we would open it up and go through it. And they'd be sitting around with their little clipboards taking notes, but it was more of a visceral experience for them. And mm. their knowledge recall on a standardized test was out of sight from that and their experience with the whole thing. And, uh, you know, and then earlier in the year from the previous year, we would uh, dig up the skeleton from the previous year's dissection. So we have fairly clean bones and I could never go to lunch on those days because I couldn't get them out of there. And I'd rotate them through from cleaning to charting to re-putting. And they just go, it's a natural, they just are wide open. They're into it. So that's the key to the public system. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that you could change the world doing that, but I don't really, I don't think the powers that be want to change the world. No, no. So I've gone off teaching my thing outside that system that is too, it got more constricted as time went on, the public school system. So Mm. it is what it is. But I do think there is a, there is a shift, you know, like with the, like say with the internet, you know, there's a lot of bad things about the internet, but think about there's no reason to be ignorant about any subject anymore. And, and from the podcast and the, you know, the guests I've had here and the conversations we've had on here, the, the groundswell of support for the conversation, these types of conversations, people are like, that's, that's the stuff I want to know. It's, it's, it's like we're all told we're not supposed to talk about that and it's all ridiculous or whatever, and so no one does. But I think deep underneath there, everybody has a longing to return to, yeah. I don't know, earth-based wisdom or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. But I, th- I think there's a, there's a great longing for that even if people don't know there's a longing for it but when they find out about it they're like yes that's that's what i've been looking yeah, for i think both of us that's our core focus um people are really awakening up they're much more tolerant much more interested much more pursuing that sort of thing pretty much and i think horses even in some of the most closed off just competitively minded only for their own self people when the horse says something they st- I think that's what breaks them open a little bit to maybe that is true, you know, maybe it is, you know, and um, I do that on a daily basis to people just kind of, well, just doing my thing. And it kind of spins them into a whole nother reality. But yeah, people are opening up, including at expos. You can do things you could never get away with in the 90s. You can you can put as a mainstay now, you know, it's fascinating. I had a, uh, a podcast guest. Her name is Jenna Darko, and I met her at a horse expo in somewhere in the Midwest. It was flat and chilly. <laughs> I don't know where it was. Yeah. But uh, how I met her was I was in the, you know, those horse expos, sometimes I'm relegated to the back corner and sometimes in the main arena. It all depends whether there's a big headliner there. And I happened to be in the main arena at this place, the main Coliseum, and I was in there and for an hour and a half I basically talked about energy and um stuff like that anyway that the the crowd didn't get less actually they 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 got got more more. but anyway this lady came up to me afterwards and she said i only saw the last half of your your demonstration she's a was a clinical psychologist she's not now um she said my friend called me and she said you gotta come over to the main arena there's a guy over here talking about brene brown and you know talking about 
uh, you know, like Wayne Dyer's, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Like you've got to come out of here and see this guy. And, and, uh, and but what was interesting, this was funny. This is a, I've told this story before on the podcast, but I go back to the booth. So I'm in the Midwest, okay? I go back to the booth and there's a line of people want to ask me a question or tell me a story or whatever. And way back in the lines, this big, tall, old, rangy, weathered cowboy looking dude you know he's got like carhartt bib and brace overalls yeah. on a big heavy carhartt jacket and this beat up straw hat and he finally gets up to the front of the line and i shake hands with him and introduce myself and he says you know sonny you were in there and you were talking about being able to move a horse with your energy and i yeah. said yeah and he goes do you want to know the best way to move a horse with your energy and i was thinking this is going to involve a big stick here somewhere. Yeah. And he said, you know, what, what the best way to do it is, is just develop a great deal of energy in your root chakra and put, bring it <laughs> in your heart space and uh-huh. breathe, breathe it towards <laughs> them. <laughs> isn't, isn't that amazing? And, and like, so did you walk through, walk through a wormhole. <laughs> did you get a sense he was speaking from some things he had learned from people before him? Yes. Yeah, that and, and you know, the thing about the Midwest is there is a – the thing about the Midwest is it's such a farming area that I don't think people have ter- totally lost connection with the land. Yeah. You know what I mean? A, a yeah. lot of – you know, Still I grew up in a – You've got to get your hands on it every day. Yeah, I grew up in a farming community. You know, I grew up on a 1,200-acre farm in Australia. Awesome. And it was sheep and wheat that we had. But that whole area, like you – you start a conversation with someone, you say, oh, it's pretty dry, or how much yeah. rain have you had? Yeah. Or it's going to rain. You know, it's, it's all about the seasons, and there is still a connection to that. And I kind of get that in the – I kind of get that in the Midwest, um, yeah. that they're, they're still – you know, I think so much because they rely so much on farming. I'm not saying that monocropping is a good idea or anything, but sure. they still – you know what I mean? You are still connected to the seasons. And yeah, you, you know, you can't argue with the seasons, you know, you have. And so you're still connecting with earth energies and paying attention yeah. to the earth and not what's going on around the block in the city is a different thing. But, uh, yeah, I, I totally get that. Actually, some of the best, most effective healing modalities have come out of the Midwest. Interestingly enough, which is kind of interesting, you know, I have an exact parallel story of an expo that you, it, it, I wouldn't call it exact, but pretty close. My first venture into expos was outside, not the main event, but off, you know, uh, over here in Sacramento, I don't know how many years ago, but been a while, but I was showing them about, I don't know, something about lameness in Oregon, something tractable. So I'd show them uh, how to flinch a liver and show what the liver would do to to the ribs and to the short striding and the forehand and whatever. And I'd bring people up and do AK where they would touch the liver, they'd go weak, or they'd touch the horse and their liver point would throw pain. And I was looking and there was maybe a couple hundred people in the stands. And when I got done, I don't think uh, there was a catwalk around the side. It was saturated. And I thought, oh my God, these people are ready for it. I didn't know if they were going to throw me out or not for doing that one. I went back to the booth, same thing. And what was interesting, though, that there were these guys that were in their late 80s and they kind of said the same thing. Sonny, loved your presentation, but my dad would have loved it more. And um, Mm. I thought they both said that independent of each other. And I thought, ah, 
that was a gift that we have lost. There's so much in our history, in our DNA with horses. I'd like to see some of those old insights and, and grab them. You know, some of the old horsemen have some really interesting perspectives and applications to healing. Well, yeah, if you think about we we grew up in the generation that, you know, if you think about, say, two generations before us, they'd never driven a car. Yep. So if you want to get from somewhere to somewhere. Pretty soon, yeah. Everybody, everybody, every, you know, it's like if you know how to drive a car, it would be like, you know, to drive, ride a horse. You know, back in the day, yeah. everybody rode horses. You know what I mean? So it's it's not that far removed no, it is. From, uh, you know, but we, you know, our generation is kind of the generation to where, like you said, these older guys are like, oh, I loved it, but my dad would have liked it more. And yep. I imagine his dad would have liked it even more because. I think so. And it was so critical to their, well, their, their lifestyle, their economics, all that, you know, they yeah. had to dive you know, into I, it. Right. I think what you did at that horse expo was, was cool because it sounded like you kind of went out there, but you kept it relative enough to yes. to draw people's interest. And I think that as a teacher of, or as somebody who's trying to introduce some ideas that are not necessarily mainstream, you you can't just hit. You know, think about what what I'm doing with horses these days. Um, my path was I was a lot more mainstream before I started going in the path I'm on now. And it was kind of like I was believable enough from before where people went, oh, well, if he's looking at that, I'll go have a look at it too. The stuff that I'm on about these days, there's been people doing it for a long, long, long time, yep. but nobody pays any attention to them because they're that, they're that whack job over there that does yep. that weird stuff. Yeah, like we, they're, yeah, they, they're not, yeah. re, they're not <laughs> relatable. And it sounds like you did, did, a, did a great job of – being relatable, but just playing with the fringes of reality, playing with the fringes of their comfort zone and introducing them into something that they can look at because it's close enough to what they know, but it's far enough away to be interesting. Yeah, yeah perfectly said. I, I like that at times, and then I like doing things that are pretty far out there as well, and I'm finding people are open to that. Um, my biggest experience I've ever had with a horse was at an expo, on a mirroring session that to this day is the benchmark for what Equus really can do in terms of healing humans. And um, if you want, I can go into that sometime. But, I'd love, I'd love to hear about that. And, where, uh, where was it? What horse expert was it? Uh, Pomona. Uh, Cal okay. Expo down Western, south. Western, Western States horse expert. Yes. Pomona, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I did do different sort of correlative applied versions of it, showing energetic assessment and, all, you know, just different, um, different aspects of healing that we don't seem to think. Like if you were a really good therapist, you must address organs or you're never, the organs will dominate muscle and bone, things like that. Well, I had one that was a human horse mirroring one. And so on Wednesday, I'm there, you know, before the Sunday presentation, trying to find a horse that I don't know that is suitable for that. And an owner that's got that it isn't if, but if the owner's willing and they're going to kind of bear a little bit of stuff out there. And, and I did, and, and I was worried about that she'd even make it on Sunday afternoon. And anyway, my whole thing was the, the horse had tremendous large intestine liver and maybe stomach or something like that. I'm sure. 
issues. So that one one I had a student in there, Miranda uh, Payne's her name, and um, I read it now, but um, she's holding the horse, and I'm illuminating the organ problem. And my wife Yolanda has the owner, the human, out of the just out of out of the energetic field distance for a reason. I'm trying to separate the human horse. And I just touch and flinch the liver of that horse is striking going up in the air. I mean, so that so this horse had massive uh, spasms of the organs. So I go and clear the organs pretty quick. And then I brought people up before and I show them, you touch this organ, your pain, your liver point's going to go off because you're touching this horse. Your large, all that, the large, everything's going to relate to a surrogate. I don't care who they are. I clear the organs. I have somebody else from the audience come up, do the same thing. Then I bring the owner over. I'm touching the organs on the horse, and I can't get a reaction now. There aren't. They're, they're stable. The minute the owner, the human, touches the horse, all those organs go right back off in, in spades. And then she lets go, and they're clear. So if you give it time, they'll come back. So that was the intent of the mirroring. And then I got real clear from somewhere above, this horse can heal this person. And Yolanda took the person about 30 feet over, left the horse there with uh, Miranda. And I walked up to her. And I, this is when the intuition really goes in, when I'm looking for the depth of it. And there's some sort of a equine human play. And I walked right up. Instead of touching her colon, which she was due to have completely removed in surgery in a couple of weeks. The lady. Uh, lady. And she could barely move very well all this. Good mirror. I went right to her lung. I didn't go to her colon. And I, when you go into the tissue, see our hands osteopathically, all of us, little kids don't know they can't, can go into tissue and take the ride. And when you get there, it's as you're there. You're, you can feel the torsion, the tension, where it moves, what it's about. I went into her lung in the upper lobe, about four inches in, and she started crying. She's mic'd up too. Her son had just passed. So we had this grief, and that was probably running her physiology mainly. So I thought, and I kept getting, the horse will heal, the horse will heal. And I'm like, well, that's weird. That's not part of this. I'm kind of closing out this session. I look at the horse, and it, and I just kind of wave the lead rope. Come, you can heal. And it would take a step and look up and go, we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to do that. I keep going, and I kept getting, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And this is not... I have super gifted horse that many horses do this. The horse went up to her lung and started doing this kind of sucking motion, went out and spat it out on the ground, came back. The thing that was interesting is I thought I was losing it. The ground started shaking and the energy started just huge vibrational stuff. And I thought, ah, that's my, I don't know. I'm picking it up. I don't know. I looked out in the stands and people were jaw dropped and their coffee cups were shaking. And I thought, oh my God, this is really the real thing. Something completely shifted in the air where everybody and everybody at any energetic level knew something profound happened. So we sort of closed it out at that point. I go back to the booth and there's about a hundred people there, right? And they're saying, they think I did it. They think, oh, I can just touch something and miraculously cause that. And, and I'm like, no, I'm the facilitator. And they say, my, my coffee cup was shaking. What the hell just happened? So the, the, the flip side of the story is the next year we're back. I'm going out looking for horses. Yolanda, uh, my wife's setting up the booth, and this gal shows up. And she says, hi, Yolanda. How are you? And Yolanda says, do I know you? This lady had completely, she couldn't recognize her. 
lost weight, moving around. She goes, did you have your colon taken out? She says, no, no. Her name was Diane. No, it all happened that day in that session. So whatever I witnessed, we all witnessed, was the apex story of what Equus can and is able to do to us. If you ever feel the ground vibrate when a horse goes into you, uh, stay and allow. And, and I've never quite felt it. I've felt it vibrate, but not like that. But there's a lot of questions have about that. You know, we have a, I don't know if you know this, but we have a, um, last year in San Antonio, this time last year, uh, we had a podcast summit. So we took 22 of the first year's presenters and they all came to this place in San Antonio and we had them do what we call a TikTok. It's like a TED talk, yeah. except it's teach, inspire, connect. And then we had about 250 people um, in the room and it was amazing, absolutely amazing. But for the day, the couple of days leading up to it and during it, I had this sensation that the floor was moving. Like it was like vertigo, but vertigo's in your head and you feel like you're wobbling from up right. top. This is like my head's perfectly still and the floor's moving. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And one of the days of the summit, I was introducing someone, you know, I was on the stage introducing someone and I said, hey, I don't know if any of you guys have felt this, but it's weird, but my feet, I feel like the floor's been moving for a couple of days. Half the room's hand shot up. And they all said they, they felt it. And some of the presenters there live in the transformational space. They, they live in the public space, presenting at, you know, conferences, stuff like that. And they all said, I have never, ever experienced anything like that energy there. It was just, it was, once you've, yeah. once you've felt that, it's like, oh, that's possible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It is. I think that's just sacred ground. And just that energy gets past a certain threshold and you enter into a different quantum physics type of thing, you know? Mm, yeah, it was all those energies all in the same place at the same time. Yeah, uh, powerful. The other thing I wanted to ask you about that, story with that lady you just tell me about or not ask you about but kind of tell you about is I've had several podcast guests recently who are the kind of I don't want to call them animal communicators because that's like uh-huh. the smallest part of what they do but they get information not from a horse they get information from the collective consciousness of horses and the story I am getting from these people is the horses are here to heal us. Yeah. I think if you're in this space long enough, that has to come through and be distilled in your being. I get it as a absolute natural law. Um, I've had horses many times look at me and I said, well, what are you really doing here as a species? And they'll kind of just say it this way, to wake people the hell up. They're here to really help us see what we already have within. And I get that over and over and over. And that's why they take on our uh, core issues in different ways. And I've had horses that were so debilitated. And the more I got into it, I realized, you know, these organ problems, your physiology, your lameness isn't even yours. Your pain constant inflammation is not even yours and i'm looking at this one particular lady one time i remember and i've gone i don't know that she's worthy for a horse like this to do this and i looked at the horse and said you know if you separate from this human you can be pain-free in a week 
And the horse, you could see it look up and go, oh my God, that would feel so good. And it was really going down that road. Then all of a sudden something came into that horse, which I would call Equus Collective. And it turned to me and said, nope, it's not negotiable. The sacred co sacred connection between humans overrides their their own experience and their own pain and suffering mm. over and over and over. It's sacred to them. Uh, mm. well, to give you the best illustration of that, the, that mirroring session that I explained later with Diane and the ground shaking, I took her horse back to those barns. If you've been to Pomona, where you got to walk pretty far, and they're those long old uh, barns where they're about 30, 40 feet apart, and they have French doors. We walked yeah, you in have the, to You have to walk down the racetrack yeah. to get back there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, then you make a right, and then whatever yeah, yeah. line. So she's further back in that barn. Uh, there's, you know, maybe, I don't know, 30 stalls on each side, left and right. As I walked in, every horse in the whole area had their head out and was waiting for this horse to come. And as we walked by each horse in succession, they would bow their heads and leave them down. So much so I turned around and they all had their horse, their heads down. They revered. They realized this horse is bigger than winning the Kentucky Derby or Tevis Cup or whatever it is. This horse really represented us. That's what I got. Wow. I've had, I've had, a, had a bit of a magic moment at Pomona there too. One time I'd finished a, um, a demo in one of those arenas and I'd walked outside and I was talking to uh, a lady and she is a, does some sort of healing modality with, with horses. Um, and the guy that with it was with her that she introduced me to, he kind of does it with dogs, but it's, it's a bit like you. There's, it's not just healing modalities. There's senses involved, yep. but uh, we're talking. Okay. And it's that it's, um, you know, it's, you, you know, it's like it's a very crowded area. There's lots of people all over the place, you know, and these two people are facing me. We're talking, and while we're talking, this guy kind of reaches up and he starts kind of scratching his throat. <laughs> and then he kind of takes his hands and he's kind yeah. of feeling around his throat like, like I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe his tonsils are sore, I don't know. Yeah. And then he starts looking around in this kind of bewildered way. And he starts looking around, then he turns around and he starts scanning the crowd behind him and he spies a dog being led by someone over there and he goes, that dog doesn't need a prong collar. Ah. He could feel, this was behind him, he was facing me. It wasn't like he scanned the, he scanned the, the thing and then thought he was going to make this proclamation. We're chatting away and all of a sudden he gets this feeling and he's grabbing his throat and then he eventually turns around and goes, yeah, that dog doesn't need a prong collar. And I was like, and this was... This was early on in my journey of um, looking at things a bit differently, and and that was just like that was yeah, another one of those. He was well, attuned to. That. He was attuned to. See, most of us would think that's us. That's our energy. Why is my throat doing that? Right. So he yeah. instinctively knew that's a different frequency. It ain't mine. And went. Looking yeah, he looked for around. He's yeah. like, I couldn't figure out what he was looking yeah. for. Like, like he was we, looking for a lost child or something. You know. Yeah, you know the indigenous people, uh, true indigenous tribes, would teach their children way as soon as they could walk to differentiate that which comes symptoms that uh, are those symptoms theirs or not is the energy there or not from an early standpoint they probably didn't know they weren't taught that you know or were and um yeah that's that's in us and some of us that word i guess why we call it empathy empathetic um communication and a lot of people have that 
And it has its blessing and its negative side because you have to clear that energy. I'm constantly teaching students that. Get that out of you. Get that energy out of you. It doesn't belong to you. Healing, taking pain from one being and putting it in another is not healing. Transmuting it to light is healing, you know. So Mm. um, that's easy. You can do that pretty easy if you're not careful with horses without even knowing it, you know. Take it on, you mean? Yep. Yeah, it's very common. You know that feeling of sometimes you do something to a horse and something releases on a horse, whether you're working with their mental approach, whatever, and you feel kind of a tingling, kind of a heavy cloud on your legs sometimes. That's a very common way that we perceive uh, a darker, denser, non-coherent energy is clinging on us. And at that point, you need to stop and you need to use your intention and some physicality to put that in the ground because the ground does it for, it transmutes for a living. So the earth Mm. transmutes, period. So anyway, you need to do that for sure. That, and if you're going to heal, you need to not let it come up your arm, you know, just into your hands, fine. Mm, Okay. Um, There was something else you said about that, that whole session with that horse was the thing about her lung, like he sucked something out of her and spat on the ground. Okay, so do you know who Rupert Isaacson is? Yeah. So, you know, Rupert made the movie The Horse Boy, wrote the book The Horse Boy, made the movie The Horse Boy, took his son to the shaman in Mongolia, and the shaman in Mongolia said that you've got to take three other healing journeys with your son. And so he went to Bushman and the Kalahari, he went to a a Native American healer in Arizona, and he went to an Australian Aboriginal in the Daintree Rainforest in far north Queensland in Australia. And what was interesting was, I can't remember which three of them there was, but three of those shamans all did something with Rowan to where they pulled something out of his head. One of them put a bone on Rowan's head, I think, and sucked on it and spat out this black sticky stuff. Um, There's no black sticky stuff on Rowan's head, but when this guy sucked whatever it is out of him, he spat it out. And I can't remember what the other two were, but there was something very similar to a black sticky stuff and spitting it out. And when you said that about that horse, I'm like, that's what it oh, felt like. The shamans did with Rowan. Yeah. Yeah. They, I, horses' main modality when they heal is to suck out and cough out somewhere. They'll turn around usually and put it in the ground mm. forcefully um, yep. with a kind of explosive cough. Yeah. You know, that seems to be. Uh, that indigenous practice is pretty pervasive globally. I wonder if they didn't learn it from horses or something like that. I don't know. But, but, but what I would say about that is every dysfunction that I've ever seen, and the old osteopaths will say the same thing. Uh, what, let's say it was in this lady's lung. Well, it tends to be in lobes of the body. So you might, you'll have a dysfunction of the entire lobe of that lung. It will be in a focused, localized, uh, emanating, um, heavy, energetic eminence. And the job is to go, and those guys, I'm sure, are doing that. They're going right in there to that center of the fo- of the problem. So it's not just the lung. It's exactly that spot. Enveloping it, and, and they're pulling it out. And um, that's what we do with our hands, basically. What do you think about the idea that the disease is dis-ease and is 
and especially the thought of them being stuck emotions. What do you think of that? I think it's the core idea of uh, what it is. I think that any dis-ease is, um, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Dis-ease is where you are off purpose. Your soul is off purpose and what you're supposed to be doing here. I think the eminence of that, including physical traumas, I don't think there's such a thing as a as a true accident. I think they're all correlated illuminations of how you went off purpose and how to get back on. I really do. And to me, the biggest, and I run, you know, I'll run the left brain and skip my skeptic hard on everything. But the biggest, well, uh, uh, profound physical healings are always in the emotional, mental uh, purpose realm completely. Those are the biggest turnarounds physically on a horse by far. I just went to write down a line that you said, and it started out with correlated, but then you were saying such good stuff. I, 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 <laughs> I lost it, so I couldn't get to it. I'll have to um, play that back later. So can you tell me that last line again that you just said? Sorry, I was trying to write down and listen to you at the same time, and it was you said something about... Well, I would... I mean, over the years, it just, what is the evidence was for, how does things line up? What does my intuition say? What do the horses say? How, what do the results look like? Because at the end of the day, I like the native phrase of no matter how woo-woo, it has to grow corn. We have to have traction in results right here, right now, in ways we can see even in mundane things. So to me, the distilling statement of what healing is about and what dysfunction, disease is about is where we as a being individually have gone off purpose. And you can find out that spot in their heart, literally where it is in the heart. Because to me, the heart is the eminence of the soul. And it correlates over and over and over. Boom, boom, boom. There it is in the body. And here's the story. And here's how it got there. And here's how we can help the horse let it go. And let it go is different than release. Release is it goes away. You release it like releasing a building and it comes back maybe a little softer. Letting go is over. You got it. You move on. You know, they're very distinct concepts. Mm, I never heard it put that way before. So let's go back to you. Uh, we were all over the shop here. Let's go back to you. You were a teacher, then you were a kindergarten teacher, and then you were like the, I forget what the next one was. You, you're no longer teaching in schools. So Correct. what was the progression from there to what uh, you're doing now? What, were the, what was the next step? Um, I was doing a lot of endurance riding and looking at all the problems that are occurring with horse lameness and this and that. I've always you know, been in the healing uh, modality focus, and then I picked up Lyme's disease. So that threw me, it's kind of like another skydiving accident. It's like, how, how are we going to teach this guy? He's, he's um, got to get moving. He's got to go further along. And that, uh, I don't know if I could ever give words for how uh, you're in the middle of, you're seeing hell there. You are in it. And um, it's, it is, uh, when it gets in the brainstem, that, that intense, there are no words to explain how deep and uh, just lack of the void there is. The struggle just to be is everything you can do 24-7. So that um, created me a quick jump on, boy, I better get better at my own um, uh, managing of healing and move through it. So from there, I started jumping and taking trainings 
in all kinds of alternative fashions. So I did, you know, I did equine Cairo. I did lots of Chinese medicine training from three or four people. I would be worked on by some hotshot applied kinesiologists, one guy in Berkeley in particular, and I would pick up things from them and then go take trainings from them or, or like training. And then, uh, oh, before, you name Before you go any further there, Tom, yeah. can you tell us what applied kinesiology is? Yeah, it it is uh, out of, it came through adjunctively, not in uh, the chiropractic profession, not in their, um, their schools, unfortunately, but is, uh, higher end chiropractors be, found the correlation between an organ, a meridian and, and muscles, and they found ways to test it. So we know it more as muscle testing, kind of like what naturopaths do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's basically what it is, but boy, its implications are all over, you know? So I did a lot of that. Studied with Regan Golob up at that time in Washington, who was one of the first AK chiropractors on horses. Um, it was a good start. He still uh, does a lot of stuff. Um, jumped around, did all kinds of things. Uh, always liked doing bone work and that. And then one day I was at a, uh, I had a, one of my mentors who's in kind of the vibrational remedy field who helped me get out of lines fully after antibiotics and all that about killed me. Um, she said, you got to go take this lady's class up in Eugene, Oregon. And I thought, what do you mean I got to go take a class, you know? And uh, so this gal up there, I did. And Patricia Corticus is her name. She's a Dutch, wonderful uh, PT osteopath up in Eugene. And she is probably hands down the best person to have your dog worked on in the world. And she's up there teaching. And now I think I'm the only non-vet in the class, but um she starts talking about this blood thing and how to move the blood and how the heart rolls and how to access. And, and she was looking at this person going, okay, T such and such is out. What organ is it? And I, I kind of went, what the hell is she talking about? And um, that led me into osteopathy. And from then on, the efficacy went just sky high, true osteopathy. And um, so that really changed my landscape when I dove into that. And I've never, you know, actually my, my training keeps going more and more, but the highest level techniques I have now um, that I'm teaching are all horse taught. I got it from a horse intuitively, usually in one session. So anyway, it's, it's osteopathically based, but that's how I had to kind of make my way in there. I'd never healed. And so from there, where, where did you, what was next after that? I just couldn't get enough and just kept working more and more horses in my usually uh, Western Nevada, Northern California area and um, started seeing, well, what levels, where is the extent of resolve I can get out of these horses and picking up? Um, I, would, I would have a lot of work from all kinds of different uh, levels, but what are these patterns of dysfunction horses physically? And then what do they mean? deeper deeper than that and then am i really seeing these horses feel better move better resolve metabolics change the owners change and and, and making sure that the results matched what i was getting and that kind of thing so i went from there to okay it's time to teach it and i waited waited till i knew i could really stand on that platform and then i started doing some expos and then it just kind of, and I developed curriculum. Now I have, I think, I don't know, eight or nine handbooks and 
I have my advanced students bugging me to create the next one because they know what I'm working on now. And they they just want to come out and work horses and they take it and run with it. But uh, Grace uh, Bukowski is one of them. And um, I've learned stuff from them certainly now. The minute you can get to this level of talking to the body, you have access to things nobody has. So my students are all always showing me something I've never seen as well. That's the way it should be. You know, they have their own innate abilities and horses help them uh, expand. They just do. From the people that I know that have been students of yours, they are all, you know, there's all of a certain mindset. And I think you've got to have that mindset to even start doing the work. Do you, do you get any students there that kind of aren't ready for it or, or like your beginning thing, can you start far enough down to where you kind of include anybody? Um, I do. Um, I've kind of asked the universe to send me people where their frequency is at such a level that I can work with them. And one of the first things you should know, you know, in my understanding is, you should never lower your frequency as a person because we have that ability to do that. You have to get the horse or the person, in this case, to meet you halfway kind of across the bridge. Yes, when I get really lower frequencies of skepticism and inability to perceive energy or want to perceive is really what it is, it's, it's much more difficult. Oddly enough, it's been the veterinarians that have been that way the most. And their ability to feel tissue and I'll even like have my hand over theirs and I'm taking my energy through there saying, okay, go down to that phrenic nerve right there. Do you feel it? And they look at me and they go, what phrenic nerve? And I look at them and I go, they're so out of their place. They even forgot their, their anatomic knowledge. But then they came to me to chip away at their own limitations. So if their frequency won't match and you're unwilling to expand and to feel energy you will not you won't get it you just won't get it that doesn't happen often yeah i didn't necessarily mean um skeptics or people unwilling i just meant well actually here we go i'm talking about me (laughs) so i've spent i've spent most of my life uh very shut down to my own you know i've been in my head not in my body sort of thing and i and i think uh, I think underneath all that, I'm very, very sensitive and had to block stuff out early on. And I'm, you know, and I, yeah, I, I still, you know, have spent so long in my head, I'm still not good at the whole energy thing. I mean, I'm, we're slowly chipping away at it, but I'm just wondering about people like me, you know, this. so it's not the skeptical type or the, the unbelieving type it's the person who would like to get this stuff but they're a bit stuck do you get many of those yeah i just got done with a foundation intensive and i would say i had four or five like that they're very willing but boy i don't know i don't know if i can do this i don't know if this is you know that kind of thing and there's something about I don't think it's just me teaching, so I'll say that right out. I get a lot of help from everything around me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it is the class is about, you know, what, all the foundational teachings and, and how energy is moving and what's going on and where lameness is coming. 
But the reality is it's about transforming their own energy to them. So the first thing I say is I'm not here about cloning me. I want you to take all of your assets, all of your history, all of your anything that serves you and now integrate it with what I want to show you. And what ends up happening is they don't want to leave at the end of the fourth day because I don't know. It's just they don't want to leave. And they always say that. And um, it's deeply transformational for them deeply and that's really where that's what i'm about that's it yeah that's yeah that's it that's very cool um i've also heard some amazing stories about your wife too tell us a bit about yolanda (laughs) um i don't know if she liked me saying this but when i got deeply into it boy we almost parted the sheets of that uh and that's true for all of us as one partner shifts and really takes off the other one gets pulled along she wasn't sure if it was going to be too much dark stuff and all that and uh she came out and watched me work on a horse one time and that changed then she was an athletic secretary kind of running a high school front office would play hooky every once in a while and hold my kind of my outtake in uh, clipboard and she would just i'll never forget I'm working on this horse trying to figure out what's going on. And I did something to the head and she kind of cringed like that. Oh, right there. I'm like, what's that about? She empathically could pick up a horse's AGR or in osteo, that means area of greatest restriction where all the other symptoms tend to key off of. You got to get that core physical area. She started, she, she had no, she had no choice. Like I didn't, she took off. So I sent her to, uh, cranial sacral classes with Upledger Institute, and she just took off. When she quit doubting herself, I think her rise to phenomenal efficacy just just exploded. So she's a she would call herself a cranial sacral therapist, which she is, and that's her human practice. But she is constantly getting results in in kids and in people that I I kind of jaw drop as well. I mean, you could. When you get to that level, you could clone yourself 20 times and still fill your book up in terms of appointments. But what she essentially does is she'll say she learned a lot of it from me, but she has her own thing. She'll go and she'll just sort of feel where the energy's blocked in you, the biggest one, and go into it softly, much softer than I would at times on a horse, and then begin to get intuitive hits what the cause is, where is it, and get the person to become conscious of their core energetic holding and then the body responds and unwinds in her hands and um it's quite fascinating to watch cranial sacral is it's part of osteopathy is a phenomenally effective modality and there's uh therapists all over the world in it yeah patrick king was telling me that he was at your i guess it's the fundamentals course or something rather yeah i think it was the end of the day and he said he was sitting there and yolanda came over and put a hand on his shoulder and said something to him and he said i just burst into tears like all this stuff just came out of me yeah uh, it was at it was at a dinner at the night before down the hill on the river there and uh he had said something so that's why she got up and she touched i don't think she meant to do that she just touched a, a key area where he was holding something and it, uh, and in a way it went and yeah she has a tendency to do that and um <laughs> she has a tendency so then to she do was that. obligated to kind of move it through the body and stuff like that mm-hmm. you know at that point but yeah she's that's where she lives she does a lot of my admin in my clinics and then she gets in there and speaking back to your last question if she starts working on people human the students a little bit 
they come back to the horse completely different and the ability to access tissue and all that changes. It's like this phenomenal team that we never, ever intended. It just happened. Right. Well, it's fascinating. If you don't mind, tell sure. me a bit more about the, you know, when you started going down this rabbit hole sort of thing, you know, you weren't sure if it was going to work out. I know from people following me would say with the horse stuff, yeah. I've caused a number of divorces <laughs> um, because yeah. you get people looking at things a bit differently and then they go down the rabbit hole and the, and the partner is not ready to go down the rabbit hole or willing to look at the world that way and the, the person who has changed cannot reconcile with the, the way the other person is still viewing the world. And uh, I yeah, think I that's the right answer to it. Mm. Yeah, I do. I think that is largely in the uh, best way to explain that is in the energetic frequency uh, uh, perspective in that they expand. And once you, from what I've seen, when because I do it for a living, help people to expand who they are inside authentically, uh, there's no going back. They'll tell you that once they're there, there's no going back. You can try to, then disease will come in differently for you. And that will create uh, in connected people like a spouse the need for them to meet that halfway anyway. And that, I think, often doesn't go so well. Uh, for me, thankfully, a lot of the spouses now, the people are coming in, their husbands, because I'm 85% of the people I'm teaching are, 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 are women that are in the healing field already. Their husbands are, are very open and they know that just whatever you're into, honey. And they're already doing all kinds of stuff. So, but if not, yeah, I'm sure most of the, of the marriage uh, conflictions that, that have been instigated from one of my classes, I probably don't even know a lot about them, right? They just, you don't right. see them anymore. Yeah. I think that's yeah, imagine one of your, Imagine one of your classes a bit like, you know, the same caveat that they have when you, you go away for an ayahuasca ceremony, like, yeah. Go home and make ma any major life decisions for about two or three months. Just Until make, you're acclimated this, in, yeah. yeah. Yeah, let this integrate and see where you end up. I think that's true. Um, it is about transforming. In fact, after the first day of any one of my clinics, especially the foundation, there's a lot of information. So the left brain on them gets spun and saturated. I get that. But the real issue is I've opened up their uh, ability to perceive energy and um, that creates a whole slight turmoil the first night. And then the next morning, I, I don't know what it is. I have a reset on them and a way, I don't know why I, every time at the end of the first day, I'm like, did I should probably do that different or whatever it is. But the next morning I go, okay, all right, we're good. Perfect. It's, it's all about transforming their, who they are back to who mm. they are, you know? Yep. Um, just looking through my notes here on you, you also, it says here you have a martial arts background too. What's, what was that? Yeah. yeah. Um, I have uh, a background in um, traditional Japanese martial arts as well as some Aikido. And so um, I really like the true samurai tradition and sincerity. 24 uh, 7 uh, connection to divine is really what they're about. And then Aikido to me with horses is, uh, it is, um, how do I put this or how do I teach it? Um, 
Aikido is really using what I would call the divine feminine energy. And that is um, non-physical brute force is much stronger in 3D world than brute forces. So one of the things I'll do with people, real simple, is I'll have them put their uh, index and their thumb together and then I'll pull it apart. And which is easy because I have mechanical advantage. Then I'll have them use no force and envision an unbreakable circle. Maybe they need the metaphor of steel. Maybe they need something else. And anybody that can go into tissue can do that, or I cannot budget. I cannot budget. So it is this sacred energy that really runs through the horse and every tissue of the body and really, uh, Osteopathy is about what is the dance of each part, whether it's an organ or whatever, and you know what the dance should look like, literally, and you go in and you help reestablish the dance again, and that physiologically shifts it. That's the secret of osteo right there. It's a natural phenomenon, very natural. So Aikido is utilizing that, utilizing um, the horse's movement, even if you have a horse that responds pain-wise and more aggressively is you don't fight their movement you bring it and you spin it and you turn it into something beautiful and then they look at you like i'm all in buddy what do you want now you know mm. um it's very much natural horsemanship i would say that i'm doing feel like you're talking about from the inside out that's all that that's really the difference. Uh, there is a book that I've read. It's funny you said that term. There's a book I've read called Radical Wholeness by a guy named Philip Shepard. I don't know if you ever heard of that book. I have not. In that book, he talks about a, um, a West African tribe called the Anglo-Iwe tribe. And they say we have 12 senses, I think. Um, but anyway, one of the senses is called Seselalame. And it literally translates into English into feel feel with the flesh from the inside out yeah really oh that's cool i would love to i would love to work with him you know speaking speaking of that uh the guy who started osteo was an md and he uh andrew still and he uh kind of was one of those traveling mds right and he had a big he lost a lot of his family it ends up that i always knew there was a native he stayed with the choctaw for a period of time and came out of that suddenly into this incredible ability to go in and heal. And it ends up that the Choctaw have that type of healing modality innately mm. throughout time. So do the Cherokee apparently. So anyway, I would love to see yeah, the think, African version. I, I think all the indigenous people did, but, but this yeah. is just, you know, this is not the, this is, this says is not the feeling art. This is the, this is using your body as a tuning fork to sense you know, to sense energies. It's feel, feel with the flesh from yeah. the inside out. You are feeling the, you are feeling the world. You know, it's, I've read stories about like trackers in Africa who could go along and look at a set of tracks and not only could they tell you if it was male or female, they could tell you if it was pregnant, if it was sick, what color it was. Like there's energetic signatures left behind that are not Correct. visible to the naked eye. But if you are in tune with things, you can read those things. Anyway, this, this says Alami is feel, feel flesh a, from the inside out. And you just said feel from the, you know, you're talking about feel out. and you said, yeah. I feel from the inside out. It's like, yeah, that's. Well, that's, that's interesting. interesting. So they're using, they're talking about sensitivity, using your body to pick up all energies that are relevant. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. a big a big part. I think it's like a big intuition part. You know, you know, just sensing, just sensing energies with your body. I've I've got to where I've been able to do it mm, bits and pieces at times, and it's like, oh, that's that's cool. When you when you're in your body and your body's your body's alive and it's buzzing, you know, it's 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 communicating with you all the time. You don't have to think, oh, what does my little toe on my left foot feel like? You know, I remember years, many, many years ago, a long time ago, before my current life, uh, I remember reading a book on basic Buddhism. And uh, well, I'm sitting in bed one night reading this book and it says, like, for instance, right now, I want you to focus on your left toe, on the little toe on your left foot. And so I'm sitting there and thinking about it. As you think about that for a while, then, I, you know, then you go back to reading the book and it says, so what does your toe feel like now? Is it, is it, is it buzzing? Is it glowing? Is it warm? And all of a sudden, huh, I can feel the, the toe on my left foot. And I've, I've never been aware of the toe on my left foot. And it's just that, it's, that aware, it's having that awareness in your body all the time. I was reading a book a while ago about, uh, you know, something to do with this sort of thing, but they were saying that Wall Street brokers, you know, who make snap decisions like game, yes, buy, sell, buy, yeah. sell, buy, sell sort of thing. Um, and so you're not looking at that trade and going, uh, let me research that for five minutes on the internet. It's just like, boom, yes, no. They said the people who make the most money can also feel their own heartbeat. And so yeah, there's like a so. gut. They get a gut. I think it's sensation. a gut intuition at that level. Yes, yeah. they, get a, they get a yes or a no from their body. The people who can make the most money in Wall Street – can feel their own heartbeat, yep. you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm aware yep. of my own heartbeat all the time now, but I remember for probably 50 years of my life, I, I didn't, you know, wasn't aware of it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bit That's of a another one of those skills we've been deliberately conditioned not to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. Um, you know, one of the guests I've had on the podcast is Mark Rash. I don't know if you've uh-huh. ever met Mark. Oh, yeah. And he's really big into the Aikido. Aikido, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually going to dinner with him and his wife tonight. Actually, they're in the they're in the area doing a clinic, and so we're going to go going to go have dinner. I, yeah, I love Mark and Chrissy; they're cool. But yeah, the the, the some of the Aikido stuff he's talked about it's um, very it just blends in really well with working with horses, you know. It does. They um, the Japanese and Aikidoists are always talking about the one point <clears throat> on the body which is below the navel and uh, the Chinese call that the lower Dantian, the Japanese Hara. And I've always, that was been the most elusive one from a healing standpoint. I'm like, I know I have to do something with this lower center. And uh, it, it's a center of movement. Uh, any good uh, physical trainer, coach, swim coach, gymnast coach, football coach, whatever, will always get the person, the athlete to move from there. That's where power is generated. That's the coordinated center. It ends up that um, a horse one day, I was working on his pineal gland, and it showed me, oh, that, that point down there is our center of fascia. It's our center of physical movement, but that's the fascial train that everybody's talking about fascia, and it moves like a DNA spiral. And it goes around these areas, and it ends up that that's the center of the fascial uh, what I call life force of the trilogy. And uh, interesting. It went beautifully with, I finally found it kind of thing. And now I can use that energy, pick it up, 
and then use it downstream to move tissue and and to to release spasms and tissue holding that kind of thing so you mentioned that trilogy so before we got started today so where tom is few listeners at home where tom is sitting right now on the wall behind me is a photograph of three bison walking through the snow side by side in yellowstone and tom you told me before we started today that there was a that that picture drew you for a reason can you talk about that yeah part of it's the depth that uh that just grounds feels that bisons have and uh, looking at them, talking with them at a distance. um, I, I, it's one of those things that's been profound for me. And yet I'm like, I I don't, I would never really want to focus on this idea of the trilogy. I'm not particularly super religious and all this. And throughout the last, Oh God, 15, 20 years, probably now I kept getting, the body works in threes, and there are three main energies. Find them, see how to work with them. And so mine started with the heart. I would start just gravitating. I mean, everybody knows, okay, the compassion and sensing the compassion in others and utilizing the energy of my own compassion to heal was huge in the beginning before I had a lot of skill. It ends up that I jumped into it with a lot of other mentor help outside of the osteo world just people that were just good, phenomenal channelers. Um, heart's the center of soul eminence. So I started working with the vascular system and massively important. The osteopaths have a saying, they call it the rule of the artery. And what it really means is that blood tends to dominate physical dysfunctions in the body. And I would agree with that. I default to blood when I see a dysfunction, if I'm just trying to clear a body. So I started working with that and where the soul is out. And then I went to the other part of the trilogy to me is coming in through the pineal, out through the ground that Eastern traditions call Kundalini. And um, I call it uh, spirit. It's the spirit, spirit cortex and the modality for that, that primarily addresses that's cranial sacral. It's all about that energy, how it moves through the body and how it does that. And there's this debate in, cranial sacral circles because these bones are like hydraulic pumps moving the cerebral spinal fluid down ends up that they've done an engineering study on that and the bones don't have enough power to do that and to me it's real obvious it's this energy that's coming in Mm. the heart itself i don't know if you've ever heard of dr thomas cowan he wrote a book and um called cosmic heart and it's all about the heart does not have enough power to pump the blood around the body so he starts talking about that well to me it's because there's an ener- another energy. Mm. And the one place of the heart, the left ventricle output in the aortic channel, that should be the thickest because it has the most physical power uh, pressure of the heart is one of the thinnest areas of the heart. So um, this trilogy went there. The last one is this life force component. And you'll hear all these sacred traditions will have uh, something about heart, about soul, spirit, and who and what you are in this life. Life force is what I would call it. The mystic schools call it that. The Egyptians call it that. The tree of life in Judaism calls it something different. Uh, the Christian people call it the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, that trilogy. So I see uh, the, the cranial sacral spirit with neurology, all the vascular system, soul, and this fascial component as this whole energetic connected part and the tensegrity of of how we move and how we're, what we're here to do. Um, 
and why it turns out for me anyway, the efficacy of resolving tissue dysfunction, if you just want to stay in the physical realm, massively different than if I changed and stayed in one box. Like muscles, the way I would move a muscle, if you want to call it massage, is I'm going to get the blood and I'm going to get the nerve there and uh, watch it go from steel to butter on the spot. That's uh, the muscle and bone does not move itself. It's what's driving it. And these, these systems, these energies are the sacred truly. They're the drivers of the physical body that we're in. So it, it's panned out for me really well. So my left brain says it's okay to do it. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. You know, it's interesting how all the, all the traditions, you know, spiritual traditions, all sorts of things, they all kind of say the same thing. You were talking about the trilogy there a minute ago. And the, I know. You know the Egyptians said this, and the, the Catholics say this, and the Jews say this, and yeah, and there, that's, there, that's, it I all goes. It's a, it's a narrower road in the end, you know. Yeah, I think that's the exciting thing about for me these days is, you know, you see stuff that just joins all the dots, you know, like you know, like quantum mechanics is kind of proving, you know, what religious people have been thinking about for a long time, and yeah, it's it's all, it's. It's getting it's, it's it's almost bringing science and spirituality closer together rather than further apart. Yeah, isn't it? It's things. exciting. It really is. I was just uh, looking at a slide I had on a PowerPoint last weekend. It's that uh, quote you can get, you know, that Einstein said. There's five levels of intelligence. And I think it's I can't remember, but it's smart, uh, brilliant, genius, something else, and finally simple. Simple. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but yeah. as Einstein did say, if you can't explain something simply, you just don't know it well enough. That's ooh, that's perfect. I like that one better. That says all of it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the an patterns Einstein come together, and the world's simpli- The universe is inevitably simplistic if we can find our way to that place. Yes, um, I was. You were talking about teaching before too, and it made me think of a not a quote, but a a premise that. They say, you know, if you want to learn something really well, teach it. Do you find, because what I've found is that in teaching and having to say the same thing over and over again to different people and make sure they get it, that in the process of coming up with a different way of saying it, you actually can get deeper meanings out of it. Like you'll, you'll know you knew it, but you, it's almost like Bruce Willis in, in the sixth sense, you know, like yeah. all of a sudden you realize he's dead and then you're like, well, hang on, I've known he's dead for a while. I was at the Western States Horse Expo in Sacramento this year presenting there and it was, it was a, one of those weekends the energy was just in the right place. But all weekend, explain, whether I was working with a horse in the arena or I was doing like a stand-up talk, I had stuff coming out of me as like I was channeling something. I was saying things, I was talking about things that I knew but I didn't know them on that level until it came out of my mouth. Like it's stuff I've been talking about yep. for years. And it was just like, it was just like it was coming out of me. I could have almost stepped out of my body, stood to the side and watched myself and go, that's some really cool shit you're talking about there. You yeah. know, it was, don't it you was, love that? Yeah. I, I do think it's channeling. Um, and, or you've opened up enough so that you can access parts of you that you weren't really quite sure how to bring in. But there's other times uh, where you're flat out getting inf- revelation energy coming in. We all, well, I mean, I think all of us can do it. Horses do it constantly. I think that's their main survival instinct, you know? Yeah. I used to have a saying in the classroom that I think it was, it was an old one, but I hear and I forget. 
I see and I remember, I know and I understand. And I would add to that, I used to add to that, I teach and I master. Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. I've read a whole book about huge. The, the whole premise of if you want to learn something really well, um, teach it. Because I think it's like a bullshit detector, like reading the energy of people. When, when you're talking about something, they're either like blank and they're like, I don't get you. I don't get what you're talking about. Or you see them kind of light up like, yeah. I, and that's for me, that's one of the things I love about teaching is the, yeah. is the feedback. And it's not the, it's not the oh, I, I want positive feedback. I want external validation. But it's, it's, it's kind of like solving a puzzle. Like when you can get someone to get it, it's like, oh, I got that, I got that part of the puzzle right. And there's, there's great deep satisfaction from watching somebody profoundly innately in themselves get it, don't you think? Mm. I don't know what it is either. I, I don't think our left brains can quite even come close to understanding the dynamic that occurs when you truly want to teach somebody at a deep level and all that changes in you. And I think we have access to other information we, not, we normally wouldn't have, you know, or better. Yeah, and I think, I think there's a level of, enough the words purity to it but it's almost like you've got to be able to want to share the information for the right reasons and then and then it will come then through you but it, but if there's if there's a bit of bullshit behind there if there's yeah, a, yeah. if there's a bit of like like ego stuff in there to where you're trying to teach the stuff to look good um, rather than trying to teach the stuff to share it's it's almost like that that ego causes a blockage and it just doesn't flow through. Oh, yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're, they're there. That's, I, I totally agree. And, and then magic happens when you're in that space. I think we get more assistance from other places in that sacred teaching. You know, whether you're just teaching, uh, if I'm just teaching a physio, a physio class on why ulcers exist, okay, I'm, as a teacher, I might get better at my presentation and fine tune my PowerPoint better or whatever. Uh, but if I'm teaching the dynamics of a stomach ulcer and how to feel it and how to engage in it and what it means to the whole body, whole different approach. You're communicating with the divine at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's cool. But I think that that purity I was talking about is involved in everything. There's a, there, I think there's a magic if you can, be doing things that you know light up your soul but you're doing them for the right i don't know doing them for the right reason it's yeah they're just i've had some i've been blessed with all sorts of amazing experiences and they all come from they all come i think they come from it's it's like letting go like you just just it's trusting the universe i think you know there's there's a bit of that. And, allow, the and, the, and allowing. I think um, one of the most powerful words in, in our English language is the word allowing. And to me, I would consider that a verb. Get out of the way. Yes, your intention needs to focus on this deeper, passionate, compassionate energy of which all things to me stem. But get out of the way and allow. Because our conditioning, we have blocks all over the map. We spend a lot of energy getting in the way, don't you think? Mm. Agreed. Yeah, most certainly. So I'm going to get to one of your questions here because I might be relative okay. to this. Uh, if you had a message you could spread across the world, one that people would listen to, what would that be? Hmm. 
uh, it's definitely correlated to what we were just talking about. It is um, whether Equus is a part of that equation or not. It is that we are a lot more powerful and able than we have any idea. And that we are energetic beings first. And that each one of us has come here for a specific type of purpose that is to to spread out. Yes, it involves service, but really, I mean, it's just to me, natural law, that that's what we're here for. And horses are phenomenal at illuminating that in us. Just phenomenal. That's what they're really here for. You know, you just touched on something then, like we're here for a purpose and you said the word, what did you say? Anyway, just coming what word you said, but it made me think of of Darwin actually, you know, like think about well think about Tesla, okay? Think about Nicholas yeah. Tesla. We were taught things about Tesla in school, but we weren't taught the real stuff Tesla was on about. You know what I mean? No, Tesla no. was yeah. Tesla was he was connected. He was really you know, it wasn't the sciencey stuff, it was the spiritual stuff that we weren't yep. told about Tesla. But also, we were told about Darwin and the, the survival of the fittest, which is a total miscommunication right. of what he was trying to say. It's the survival of the most collaborative. And we have been it's raised to... Yep. Yep. It's cooperation. It's not the survival of the fittest. It's not the, it's not the who can win the war, who can bomb the other guy the most or whatever it might be. Right. It is survival of the ones who can collaborate for the goodness of the whole. And, and, and these are some things that, you know, like we have been conditioned to look at the world a certain way, but like people like, say, Tesla and Darwin, we've almost been, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like the Bible because I think there might be a few things left out of there that we were supposed to hear, but it didn't align with the powers that be back in the day. So we... We didn't get that. That's, bit, that's you know? perfect. Yeah, that's dead on too. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's cooperation. Like, but, yeah, you know, uh, I talked about Rupert Isaacson before, and he's we've ta- I've talked to Rupert about you know like hunter gatherers, and he says you know we tend to think because we come from you know we come from societies where there's a leader, there's a president, there's a king, there's a queen, there's whatever it is, and he said when you go and film a um, hunter gatherer society, you know. Someone comes out to talk to the film crew because he can speak English or whatever, but we think he's the chief. There is no chief because it's a collaborative and the best person for the job does the job. And it's only our interpretation of what's going on that we say, oh, he's a chief and he's in charge of everybody and whatever. But that's only because that's the way we'd look at it. That's not the way they look at it. Yeah, that uh, they're more equanimous, kind of like the word equus, right? And um, yeah. true functioning democracy. You know? Yeah, and and you know, reading ethologists and stuff, horse wild horse herds are the same. Like, yep, whoever is best suited for the job gets the job. And if there's any conflict, it's not over who's the boss. It was like who would be the best person for this particular job. Yeah, and it's the same with hunter gather society. Yeah, and we just we just conditioned to look at things from a quite a different perspective. Oh, I think so. And I think that the different jobs, if you want to use that word, or uh, focuses, talents, 
uh, each tribe will have somebody born in for that purpose. And each, like, I know Mustang herds, they have roles that I've never even heard of when you start talking to them and seeing what they are. It's mm. phenomenal, you know? I mean, they have the the lead stallion, you have the lead mare, okay, we get that. Um, you have the horse that, when he gets, usually it's he, I don't know why, uh, when they come into human captivity as a Mustang, they must continue their purpose that they hadn't heard in some parallel fashion. So the horse just loves to run at high speed, VO2 max. He needs to find an owner that loves to gallop because mm-hmm. his job is a decoy. And the one that's the true in- intuitive horse of the herd is really the one that picks up on when a predator's coming long before the horse that can hear the best or feel the ground shake, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's all oh, that stuff. That stuff fascinates me. Um, okay. Another one of your questions was what advice would you have for people entering your profession? And before you do that, we actually have to quantify what exactly you think your profession is, what profession you're actually referring to. Because, because you know, you think yeah, about I, you, you and every other podcast I get, yeah, it's not like you have a job title. You know what I mean? You, there's, there's so much you guys bring to the world that you first you've got to say, if you're going to talk about advice for people entering your profession, you have to actually quantify what that profession is. Yeah, so, I mean, you could put it as a um, – I, 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 I call myself an equine osteopathic practitioner, clinician, educator. If I have to put one brand, uh, one uh, word on it, it would, it would be in the osteopathic field, and that is a broad field in all levels, uh, physical, emotional, all of it. Um, I, I mean, but I'm bringing into it. That's why I called my business years ago Integrated Equine Therapies because I'm bringing – Every modality that's in that has relevance. I mean, the Chinese points on the spine are like a piano keyboard. And all you got to do is which notes out? Oh, that organ's out or that meridian's out. And it's key that a regular osteopath doesn't pick that up. But osteopathy, I'd say, would be uh, if I had one core area to illustrate would be that. Um, but, But really, you need to be open. And what I see over and over is, to be truly effective in this healing space, first you have to be able to want to, you have to be passionate and you have to have a deep drive to want to do it. Um, and then you go look for somebody to train under. Is usually what I see. And probably the horses are all the initiators of that. Um, and then in my space, I mean, I like all levels of modalities from massage to, you know, even allopathic acute medicine is I have a lot of respect for it, but where it really gets interesting, where horsemanship gets interesting, where healing gets interesting, horses, dogs, people, whatever, is that our hands can and do go in and affect tissue down with precision. So that is a phenomenally different approach than 98% of the people out there, Um, including most of the osteopaths in the world today are more superficial good physiotherapists and that but they have forgotten the core concept of osteopathy of which the europeans and the australians tended to have kept and it came from this country so 
learning to go into tissue and truly get 3D verification that you're there and that it flipped and moved in your hand and everything's back into balance in the area you just worked on is a key component to any modality. So that and inevitably you're going to come to the place where the physical dysfunctions are generated from some other core dysfunction that is in the being. And um, when that happens, you really are in the space and you take off. And it's coming in, people are awakening. So the quote unquote market for that is exponential because the results are much better. Right. People want to wake up, you know, so fascinating, huh? Did that answer that? Well, it's, it's your answer, so <laughs> there's, there's no right. <laughs> See, now, now this, whole, this whole childhood ridicule is coming back out again, isn't it? You've got to get the answer right, don't you? No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is no, there is no uh, right answer to, you, to anything true. you might say. It's, it's your answer. This is, this is not the Beautiful. Get It Right podcast. This is the Journey On podcast. This is about the <laughs> Um, do you, I know you didn't ask this and uh, choose this question, but it always fascinates me. Do you have a favorite book? And I don't mean your favorite one to read. I mean, one that you tell people about like, Hey, you really should read this book. Mm. Boy, that, that's a tough question. Um, Especially saying you didn't choose it, you know, <laughs> I have so many, I, I need an entire huge room just with books. Right. Um, there's a book that comes to mind if I'm teaching kids or if I'm teaching adults or not teaching offering, uh, what people mostly need. Um, the, <laughs> that's interesting. Yes. Hanta yo, Hanta yo. I forget who wrote that. It's about a 500 page book and it is a fictional, semi-fictional, uh, story that takes place in the plains before European contact. It's basically the uh, Ogala Sioux, and it is so rich in deep metaphor. Uh, it's just a phenomenally uh, interesting book. I'm so glad I asked that because I've never yeah. heard of that book before. Yeah. How do you spell H-A-N-T-A, it? Hanta, Y-O, separate word. In fact, my other email is Hanta underscore yo at yahoo.com. And oh, really? it means, Hanta yo means clear the way, clear the way. You know, so fascinating, you know, uh, okay, that would be not, the book. I've never heard of that book before. Really? So I'm glad I asked that I guess question. it goes back to the 80s, maybe, as mm-hmm. a copyright, you know. Wow. Have yeah. you ever read uh, like Black Elk, Black Elk Speaks? Oh, big time. Yes. Yeah. And speaking on that, uh, there's a book. If you want to see deep metaphoric metaphors on how energy is interpreted by Native peoples in the North American, it's uh, Seven Arrows. Hyatamosis Storm. That is a blow your mind, oh my God book. Um, and Arrows. yeah, Seven Arrows. Uh, very interesting. And talks a lot about the medicine wheel and in each person's individual shield, uh, their story, their purpose, and where they are on their journey in their lifetime. It's uh, mm. quite rich and fascinating. And you'll see the Africans. Indigenous people have very similar takes on it, and so on and it goes. You know, so did the uh, uh, dru- uh, druids and all that too. Same thing. See, that's the interesting thing is, yeah. is 
for me, the interesting thing is reading about all these different Indigenous peoples and then looking at, and they never had contact with each other. This is before yeah. people sailed across oceans and stuff and their, you know, I mentioned it before about the, the shamans that Rupert Isaacson took his son to. The things that they do are so similar. It's like, you know, it's like earth wisdom. It's not, we. this is not our culture. It's like earth culture. You know, it's kind of like in the Amazonian rainforest, the the ayahuasqueros down there, you know, when you ask them, so, you know, because to make ayahuasca, you've got to blend these two plants out of the million plants in the Amazon. Like, how did you figure out which two to blend together? And they said, the plants told us. You know what I mean? So, like, all these different indigenous practices that are all very similar from places a long way apart just makes me more aware of that this, it's, it's more earth wisdom than anything. Yeah, I think the divine talks to us through everything. And um, I've, I've watched Native American shamans walk up to a plant and talk just like they're talking to me and you. And they go, if they're going to gather, you know, you see this all over the world, they're going to go gather uh, burdock or whatever it is or sage or something. They walk into an area and talk to the grandfather or grandmother of that group and ask permission and do an offering. And then they're told how much they can take. And, and, and that's true all over. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, that's the way the Inuit hunt. I, I had a big conversations with, um, oh gosh, what's his name? He speaks, he travels Europe primarily to help people awaken, to melt the ice in the heart of man. Um, I'm, his name's Aluni. Uh, Anagwak is his name. And he told me, well, I'm going to go hunting uh, walrus next week and I have to do ceremony today. And when I go there, I go there until one shows themselves and he doesn't stalk them. They just show themselves. So very different than our approach in, in this country. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a total, it's well, the country I'm from too. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, that, yeah, that's the start. Oh, this is all the stuff that excites me these days. All sorts me too. of in indigenous practices and just getting back to, um, you know, how we're supposed to live. And I don't, you know, and I don't think we can leave, we, we can't just bulldoze all the buildings and live under a tree no. again, but we can, we can most certainly be aware of things that, oh, think about this. I've talked about this in the podcast before, but think about how back in like when we were kids, you know, all parents were told you put the child in the other room and you let them cry it out. You know, that was, right. I think it was Dr. Spock. Um, yeah. So if you think about that, that's not normal. I mean, if you think about anybody that had that happen, your nervous system is dysregulated yeah. from the very beginning. Your, your nervous system doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. It's a dysfunctional nervous system. That's from day one. And then think of all the other shit that gets piled on top of that. And then we wonder why we have like mental health crises, you know? Yeah, our culture is really good at... Um, creating discordance in who we are, you know, they really are. Um, I was just demoing this uh, horse recently and I don't know what we were doing. And uh, his issue, wherever I was, became an emotional issue. And I pick up the emotion. So there's this guy, Frank Lowen, he's a, a human therapist out of Spokane, Washington. And he, he talks about how if an emotion is a shadow comes up to the surface, it will cause an eminence above the uh, orbital uh, foramen of the horse or us on their left side, so my left side. And if it's a belief, it'll be an eminence on the right. And I'll be damned if 
every student, when I say, come here, let me see if you can fill this, everyone can do it right away. And what you do is you then help the horse reintegrate it in their body because the universe doesn't say, yeah, let me just take that away and you're done with it. Oh, no, no, you got to completely look at all of it and bring it all in and face it completely for letting go. And I'm doing this to this horse. And then I realized that's when I intuitively get his story. He never, his mom did not finish her education with him. So I, with horses, it it's still blows my mind. I call in and I just tell the horse, call in your mother, whether she's passed or not, and have her finish her education with you. And within five to 10 seconds, unlike us, you see that horse look up and everybody senses something coming in and some download occurs right there on the spot. And it is, uh, you can never, ever get tired of it. It's just, uh, it's awesome. And things shift in the horse, physically everything. And it's very simple for them, but we still need to facilitate that that uh, connection. Right. But they can handle it, no problem. Yeah. Whereas humans, we really got to, takes a little bit more facilitating to get that to occur, you know. We've got a bit more of a story about it. Yeah. Mm, well, I could chat with you all day about this kind of stuff, um, but unfortunately we can't do that. Before we go, uh, how do people find out more about you or, or get in contact with you? Um, the best one's probably my website, Tom Mays, T-O-M-M-A-Y-E-S.net, and there you can see some background, uh, educational, maybe some articles, not to the level I need. And if you're interested in courses or you want to see some educational video or something like that, um, Facebook, I'm on Facebook, same. Um, I'm not doing much on Instagram. My next journey, my next phase is now to put out more YouTubes and videos for people to assess and even just helping basic fundamental dysfunctions physically where are they coming from and and so on or even how to do it on their own horses you know but yeah awesome well i love what you're doing in the world i think it's amazing and uh, thank you so much for joining me oh my pleasure thank you for having me tons I, thank you. it was great finally meeting you i've heard so much about you so it was, it was, it was yeah. a fun chat same here same here and for you guys at home thanks so much for joining us we'll catch you on the next episode of the journey on podcast Thanks for being a part of the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.